Welcome everyone to Plugged and Unplanned. It's Tony Nash, the CEO of Booktopia, back with you again. And today you better strap yourselves in because I have Andrew Griffiths, a best-selling author. I've known him for many, many years. Met him at, uh, at one of the bookseller conferences. Crikey's, it must have been about oh, 14, 13 years ago, a long time ago. He's got a new book out. Someone has to be the most expensive. Why not make it you? And that has got to be a book that someone, as they're walking past, is going to take it off the shelf and, and grab it for sure. So welcome to the show, Andrew. Good to see you again. Great to be here, Tony. And yes, it's, uh, it's nice to lament how many years have passed uh, since, we, uh, since we first met. It's, uh, it's, it's great. Great to have a chance to have a chat uh, with you. I mean, author of 13 best-selling books. 13, you're really starting to, to get up there into in, like... You, you got to be in like how many people write more than 10 books there's not too many right so you're getting right up there in terms of prolific writer it, it, it starts to get to the stage though right I think the first one was the one that you, you for starters you never think anyone's gonna buy it so and I think this was even before Booktopia had started wasn't it my first one came out in 2000 the end of 19. So about 22 odd year, 21, 22 years ago. And of course, I was more surprised than anyone that actually, you know, one person apart from my mother would buy it kind of thing. Um, and, and then, so the first one was the big one. Then the second one, it's like, oh my goodness, they want me to do another one. And then the third one, after a while, it's just kind of like, okay, and another, and another, and another. And, and I think it's a standard deviation element, right? It's like, you only get so much more credibility. Like, what's the next milestone? Is it 20? It's like, oh, God. <laughs> no, tw 25, then you get, it's like a silver anniversary. Then you move on to gold, you know, for 50 and diamond is 60. It's, it's like, you know, it's like a marriage. It, it is. I think I'll run out of life before I run out of books. So that's yeah. what I've decided. I've got my little spreadsheet now. I've got about 40 or 50 titles that I want to write, but I don't know if I've got 40 or 50 years left in me. So, so this this one, I mean, and then you've got like someone has to be the most expensive. Why not make it you? And then as you open up the cover, it says, but if you're going to be the most expensive, you have to be the best. And so when when you were, I assume this must be another, this must be a COVID book. Um, I, I wrote it in COVID, but I've been working on it for, for uh, 10 years. I have you right. Okay. Mm. Right. Um, the, the idea behind it, maybe right. not physically writing, but yeah, it's a COVID book. Yeah, so so when you when you thought about the um, the, the the other titles um, that you've that you've written and it's you're very business focused, market your business, uh, survival tips, you know, and these are all these ones are all one hundred and one ways, uh, bulletproof your business, um, the me myth, etc. So then you've obviously covered a lot of areas. This one though is a very is very different. It's kind of it's it's a it's a it's a provocative um, question. It's a challenge. It's like most people think: um, I've, if I'm cheaper, then I'll get the business. So, so how how rampant is underselling yourself or or mm. not um, not valuing um, valuing yourself enough to to ask the big question what how do you mm. how, how do you when you because you meet with a lot of business people as part of mm. your your keynotes and your mentoring and your business um coaching etc how how um is this like one of the um one of the ones that um is largely overlooked it is and and i think for me i i've noticed this as, as an issue for a long time I bought my first business when I was a kid. I was 17 years old and it was a dive shop in Sydney. And uh, it was, uh, I didn't know about doing business. So I just copied what the guy before me did. And, and his whole mentality was, you know, we were 30 kilometers from the ocean. We need to be the cheapest. So, so his entire strategy was cheap. And, uh, and, and so as you do, when you start out, you tend to, I looked up to him and he had all the answers. So I, I became the cheapest in my dive shop. And, and it was a terrible strategy. It was the strategy that, that you made no money. It was, uh, it, yeah, I was borderline broke for the first, only for the first two or three years and going backwards. And it, it took a radical, radical shift for me to transform into becoming the most expensive. And that whole process that, that led to, that, that changed a lot in me. 
I, I, I observed it and obviously it had an impact because it, I think your first business is often the one that influences you in so many ways. But I then as I started to move into what I was doing, as in writing and speaking and all the other stuff, I, I met so many business owners that I would be working with and I'd go, wow, you are fantastic at what you do, yet you're exhausted, you've got no money, you, you've, you're attracting these clients that don't value you, all of this kind of stuff. Why don't you charge more? And I, I normally get this, this string of the market won't take it, people won't buy it, you know, all of this, the stories that people tell themselves in that scenario. And uh, it stopped them from actually charging what they're worth, let alone from being the most expensive, Tony, you know, just actually charging what they're worth. And, and I encountered more and more and more businesses in that space, particularly as things have grown more and more uh, competitive, that, that the, the first strategy in a lot of businesses is to be the cheapest. And, and my view on that is I don't actually think it's a strategy for a lot of businesses. I, I think it's a, a kind of lazy, lacks creativity, et cetera. And of course, it depends what you're doing. I understand that. Um, but I, I saw a lot of people who are fantastically creative or they just, they might be making yogurt. They might be making cheese. They might be an accountant. They might be a, whatever it might be. And you're just looking and saying, even if you were fully booked, you would never be making a really a, a decent income. You'll just slowly work yourself to death. And I've noticed in the last maybe 10 years in particular, more and more of this. And I do think it's directly in relationship to, to the global competitiveness of, of everything. Um, and more and more of those people charging less and less for what it is they do because they don't have an alternative and their imposter syndrome, lack of self-worth, whatever it might be, tends to hold them down. And, and to be really honest, it, it breaks my heart when I see a business owner who is great at what they do and working themselves to death and there's no real path forward simply because they don't charge enough and they're caught in that loop of going, you know, I, I've got to keep doing this. So that's interesting. Now, as everyone knows, I don't want to give the book away. Um, you got to go out and buy it, whether it's um, in a bookshop or online, like a company like Booktopia. Um, please go out and buy Andrew's book. But um, if you think about that, and I'm sure you go into, into great detail, the, the, the one question or the one realization or the one point of, of shifting from that, I can't say a poverty mindset, but a, a scarcity mindset or, a, or a, like um, um, a smaller mindset to a more abundant mindset, someone who can like, what is the, is it just simply going, oh yeah, I'm, I'm worth it. Um, let me give it a go. And then just um, kind of getting used to the, the new rates and, and they may lose some customers, but then they keep other customers. Like what is it, is it just simply just doing it or is it actually, you've got to, you've got to, really, sure. you've got to go deep and change your values and your beliefs. Uh I think that there's two different levels of doing this. One is it's rare that I walk into a business and I wouldn't be able to say that you can charge more for what you're doing right here, right now, today. You know, you could certainly charge more for that. You could maybe package that differently, put your pricing up there. You can sell that differently and your existing customers would certainly, that they would not, you know, not shift. That, that, that would be fine. But to, to really reverse it, and let's say, okay, I want to be the most expensive at what I do, and I really want to start to charge really what I'm worth, is you're right. I use a saying in the book that you can't just put lipstick on a wombat. And really what I mean by that is you can't just, if you charged $100 now, now, you can't just start charging $300 tomorrow. Well, you can, but you'll lose all of your customers. You probably need to lose them anyway going to change but but it's a bit of a process and, and i talk about this in the book where i go well the first thing is you've got to say well you've got to create a, a better alternative and an aspirational future what do you want it to look like if you're working your butt off you're struggling you're doing this you're doing that and you're really not getting paid what you think you're worth you know are you happy there if you're happy there, great okay well that's your thing but if you're tired of it and that's what i see most people they, they go, I'm tired of working really hard and not getting what I'm, what I'm really worth. 
And that's and I say, well, that's the great thing. What does it look like if you did change that narrative? What what do you really want it to, to look like? And most of the time, it's not that they want a Maserati. It's not that they want to, you know, have a mansion, you know, on North Head. It, it's they actually just want to not be working like a dog. They want to make sure there's there's always money in the bank. They can afford to have the things that they want. It, it's rarely about being, you know, billionaires, etc. So then I think it's about saying, okay, so if we're going to change, what have we got to change? So sometimes it's even perhaps suggesting that, well, you know, your existing customers now, they're in the routine. They understand, they're buying, they're coming to you because you're price driven or whatever the reason was. You've got to start to change that. And the first thing that's got to start to change is your own thinking. Because the minute we start to change our prices, it, it's scary because we're going to have people that are going to, are going to leave us, as you rightly pointed out. And, and we have to kind of be able to be okay with that. But I say, again, can't put lipstick on a wombat. If you're going to change stuff, you can't just put a bigger price tag on it. You've got to start to change other things. And you've got to start to create a culture in the business, which is saying, okay, well, if we're going to make this move, let's start, let's make sure our staff are on board. Let's make sure our suppliers are on board. Maybe it's time for a rebrand. Maybe we come up with a new business name that showcases that we're changing. Are we even in the right location if we're a bricks and mortar kind of business for what we're becoming? And I had that great example. I had a marketing consulting firm and, and most of my clients then, this is obviously a lesson I had to learn a few times, Tony, where my target market was small business, but I was, you know, I was relatively cheap and I attracted kind of small businesses that really struggled to pay for a marketing consultant. Um, I was in an industrial kind of an area and, and I went, oh my God, I, my, my whole lesson that I'd learned in that dive shop, I'd forgotten about. So for me, I literally changed my company name, moved to an office and I moved to an office that was around my, uh, architects, engineers, lawyers, doctors, all the rest of it in a building. And I became a marketing company inside that building. And our, uh, back then, my prices went from $100 an hour to $300 an hour. I got my team to start wearing you know, a suit and we fitted out our offices really beautifully. We, we, we became more of that brand that, that these organizations would work to. So if I moved there and I was still $100 an hour and it was still that kind of cheaper, dodgy little marketing company, wouldn't have mattered. Those, those people wouldn't have done business with us anyway. But at the same, if I just tripled my prices and still had the same operation at the other place, my existing clients wouldn't have gone there. So, so that move took an investment, took a vision, took a, a plan and a strategy. And even things like how we sell ourselves had to change. Our, our wording and our vernacular had to change because we were so much about fast, we deliver quickly, we're affordable, we're all those things to we're quality. We take our time to get it right. We, we had to come up with a new narrative, a new story as well. So generally, there's a little bit of a process. First step, yes, there's some low-bearing fruit that you can put your prices up. Or if you want to look at this as a longer-term thing and position yourself at a more you know, where you want to be longer term, maybe the most expensive, then there's a process to follow. And, and, and I think that it works, but it's, it's not for the faint of heart. So when, when you um, talk to people about that, do you, I'm just curious, is it because they, um, they just really do not want to talk about the price? So by being the cheapest, it's easy that then you just have to talk about the intangible services and other things that you do. But as soon as your price is going from $100 to $300, then you're going to have to talk about money. And then you're going to have to talk about what, you, what you're worth. And they, in, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of people that really feel uncomfortable about that. And so is that the stress test of whether um, someone can go the distance? Um, like, for 300 an hour, it's very different than a thousand an hour. And mm -hmm. you two have sat there and go, well, let's make ourselves a thousand an hour. We just, 900 an hour, we just tripled ourselves there. What would 900 an hour look like? Um, and, and, and so is that, did you, do you find that when you're mentoring people or challenging them, that that, that, that is fundamentally um, the problem uh, that they need to kind of be trained on how to start talking about absolutely yeah so how, how do you how do they how do, they, do they ever get over that can they can they shift or are they kind of stuck 
They do. I, I think they can get over it, but it's like generally people are in that pattern where if they're the cheapest, that becomes their lead, right? The reason you should buy from us is because our price is the best. And they're assuming that that's what their customer is looking for. And if they're a price-driven business, in some situations, that is what their customer, their current customers are looking for. But when, when you start to, to charge more and your customer base changes, what happens is I find that the, the money conversation is also different. I, I find that um, there's more of uh, the, the assumption about, well, obviously you're not the cheapest. It's obviously this business is, is about quality, whatever it's about. The conversation is more, you know, send us a proposal, tell us about your pricing structure. So when I moved into that example that I used about moving my marketing company, really the conversation most of the time with the professionals that I was dealing with was to find out it, it all shifted from how much are you to this is what we need. We really don't, you know, we don't understand branding. We don't understand marketing. We're trying to do that, blah, blah, blah. And then, by the way, just let us know what your pricing structure is so that we can budget for it. It became a very small part of the conversation and it certainly wasn't something that was led with. But I do think, and, and I'm sure you've seen this, that a lot of people aren't very good at talking about money. A lot of people, uh, th there's an awkwardness about talking about money. There's particularly in business. And, and I do think it's something that we've got to be able to move beyond. I do think that we've got to be able to, to have conversations uh, about money. But if our only conversation is that we're the cheapest and it, uh, that's not a good conversation, it's like those businesses that you go to and you ring up and you say, how much, you know, or go and how much is it for that phone? And they say, well, it's $1,000, but I can give you $250 off that. You go, well, I haven't even asked for a discount. I haven't even told you that I'm looking for a cheap price. What, why are you discounting before I even have got into the conversation? So, so it's interesting to think that, that there's a lot of the, the internal machinations about you know, changing price, losing customers, being the most expensive. It's, it's like a new suit. You, you've, you've got to get comfortable with that new positioning. And I think that that's why I find, again, when I'm working with someone, we're having a lot of conversations because it might even be the staff in the business that are going, well, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're the cheapest and we're comfortable being there. When so I come along and go, well, we, we want to make you a quality product offer and a quality service. That means things have got to change. You've got to dress better. You've got to, you know, we, you, you don't leave your lunch at the reception table. We've got to offer much better service. We've got to, you know, communicate better. We've got to, we've got to over deliver in every way. Not everyone is going to be able to do that. And that's why when you make that transition, you do lose a few people along the way. You definitely lose customers. And I always say you lose the ones you need to, to lose, you know, um, particularly cheap customers that don't want to pay a great deal. You don't want them because in many instances, they just refer other cheap people. And cheap people generally don't have a lot of loyalty. They'll go wherever the price is cheapest. How do you build a business you know, around that? So there's a mind shift that takes place. It, it, it is something that, that, and that's why I'm very cautious in this book. When I first wrote it, I kind of said, right, do this, do this. This is the steps you follow. And then I took a step back and thought, well, hang on for a second. What I'm asking people to do is actually a pretty big deal. And, and, I, and I went back and wrote a whole pile of other kind of stuff about, hey, this is going to be a little bit uncomfortable to do this. This is not easy. And I appreciate that I'm asking you to do something pretty brave in your business. But the alternative is that you just keep going the way you're going. And it's only going to get harder because we all know there's always going to be someone that's going to come along who's going to be cheaper. And if your client base are not loyal because they're really just looking for the cheapest, you know, the, the writing can be on the wall that, that, that your business may not be around because that next cheapest has come along, come along, come along. So I'm trying to build a business and a model that's going to be future-proofed, to use a bit of an overused kind of term, but one that's going to get you through by building a stronger business. It's more financially stable. You've got fat in there financially. Uh, I, I think those kind of businesses that actually know how to charge what they're worth, honestly, get through tougher times much easier because they just have more money in the bank. They have a different type of customer, a different type of client, perhaps, that is also a little bit more affluent, who's going to support them you know, during those tougher times. That, that's been my experience, Tony. So what about then um, going way beyond the being the most expensive 
to the uh, the most outrageously expensive and going you know three hundred dollars an hour stuff it up let's make it five hundred an hour let's let's and and basically you find yourself not working at all um <laughs> because you've overpriced yourself and, and you've got and, no one no customers at all right that's right <laughs> so like um so it comes down to that like i really get the whole thing about being the best and mm. and it's not implied um but oh so if you're the cheapest then you're not maybe you're not the worst um mm. but you're probably not the best mm. and so mm. do you want the best or do you want um the the worst or or lesser you know the less of the of the most reputable the most qualified the most capable companies um consultants whatever around right so i i, I can i can see that there's the value proposition there as well i guess a lot of people look for the best value so it doesn't necessarily mean that the cheapest um it can be the best value which is um which is probably the sweet spot in terms of where you're going to be the busiest and you're going to be the um, um, the most, I guess, reviewed and, and uh, recommended of, of all. Um, so, so is there anything like, you know, like you've worked with people and you said, and they've just overpriced themselves, um, keynote mm. speakers or people who have said, oh, I charge $100,000 for an hour's presentation and, and <laughs> that's my going, going rate. And I don't, well, how, how many have you done this year? Well, I haven't done any, but you know, like there's a lot in the pipe, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I'm living in a box, you know, on Pitt Street because it's close to where all the speaking jobs happen. Yeah. You know, it's like on that. Look, you know, absolutely. And, and, and see, that's, a, that's a, such a, a, a good kind of question to ask. For me, there's a couple of different things. Like I always say, right, if you're going to be the most expensive, as you pointed out earlier, you've got to be the best. And, and, I, and I get that you understand that. It, it's... What, what we think, though, is, and this is that great conversation about value, is that we think that being the best relates to that product like or, or service or whatever it is. But to be honest, being the best is everything. It's all of these parts. It's, it's about how you communicate. It's about how you engage. It's about the moving from transactions to experiences. It's, it's, it's every little part. It's like you think about it to use the one that's overused, but think about the whole Apple experience, most expensive of phones, the little white box that you open like that, that is a total experience of opening your iPhone box. I talk about this. It's the only Apple story I share because it's all done to death. But the box to me is so extraordinary. They've made opening the box an experience where you, you, you know, we all know if you had an iPhone, you know what that's like. You probably still got the little white boxes somewhere all you can use them for is hamster coffins. There's, there's no other actual use for them, but we keep them because we've got an emotional attachment with it. And when we open it, you hear a little of Steve Jobs' air coming out of the, the box when it opens. And you go, oh my God, they've made an experience out of that. So being the best is not just what I deliver, it's all of the other parts around it. So that's a big thing, but you're right. And some people though, you cannot follow this, this strategy if you don't deliver. So, so I look at it, I might go into a restaurant and they'll say, oh, well, okay, what we want to, we want to increase our prices. And, and I go, okay, well, how are we going to do that? You know, like, is it, are we going to rebrand or you just, no, no, we want to keep the same brand, we want to, but we want to put our prices up. And, and what I am always very open and honest about is saying, but the problem is I buy a meal off you today and it's great, but tomorrow it's terrible. So next day, it could be this, there's a lack of consistency. So you either be really good or really terrible, pick, pick a lane. Which one do you want to be? If you're crap and horrible, that's fine, all right? Just be that all the time because at least people will know what they're going to get. So things like McDonald's have made a, you know, a life out of doing this. You know, it's just, it is what it is. They're not trying to say we're five-star gourmet food, cheap burger, fast, blah, blah, blah. That model works for them, Right. But if you're trying to charge more, you cannot be inconsistent, right? That's, that's the first part. You've got to be totally consistent all the time. The second thing is you've got to do small things really, really well because it's this whole combination of lots of little things that make up that overall experience that people see value in because I think that it's not only that we look at and say, am I getting value for money with my iPhone? It's am I getting value in the whole experience? I can get an iPhone cheaper if I go to JB Hi-Fi or I can go to an Apple store and pay more, but 
wow, I get this, I get this, that experience, rah, rah, rah. And again, that clearly points out there's two types of customers. There's those who are going to go to JB Hi-Fi or wherever and get it cheap because they don't, that's what they want. That's great. But my view is there's a much, there's a bigger growing market of those people who are prepared to pay more for value. Mm. And it's what they see as value. It's like if you're using a lawyer and you turn around and go, this, he's always got my back. He's always reliable. He's always um, consistent. He always gives advice when he says he will or she says, you know, they don't. And, and yeah, they're expensive, but they're the best in what being the best means for me and my thinking about it, the value that they bring to the equation. I mean, I, I have a lawyer, Tony, that I've dealt with for 30 years and, uh, and um, he, he cuts out things out of magazines and now he prints off stuff on the, he sends me these little uh, kind of things about writing and about books, Booktopia float and this. And, like, it's hilarious. Tom sends me all this stuff all the time. I don't even live in the same state anymore, but I still get these letters from him. And, and, and it's just, hey, Andrew, saw this, thought you'd like it, um, thought it might be helpful, rah, rah. Now, he's been my lawyer, one of my lawyers for 30 years. He's hopeless, right? He's a terrible lawyer. I have other lawyers when I need to really do stuff that matters. But, but I just, he's just a good guy. <laughs> it's a, I feel a valued connection with him that I'll get him to do a bit of copyright stuff or whatever it is. But I look at that and go, well, the value I get out of Tom is a, probably the reassurance that he's there. You know, not not in his lawyering ability, which you know that's kind of hilarious. So I'm sure you've I'm sure you've used that line before. He, so he probably knows about that, or he doesn't listen to these podcasts. So you're, you're safe. <laughs> I, I hope so. I, he might sue me now, yeah, <laughs> and I'll have to pay him, yeah. right? <laughs> that's so great. Hey, um, I'm looking through the book and the chapters of the book, and mm -hmm. like you, it's like you really chunk it down for us, so we don't we don't have to do these really big chapters to to try and get get through um the specific concept is it one of those books that you feel where you really should start from the beginning and make your way through because it's it's the logic's there or can you just simply you know what's going on for me today shut your eyes and then open up on a page and you go that's the most important information for me today what where i want i needed to i needed to read that is it how do you think no i i think i think it is a I'd encourage people to read it from the start and follow it through. Now, as you pointed out before, most of my other books, my entire philosophy was you can open it at any page and today, excuse me, today you can actually use this information. Um, but, and this one is not though. This one is, this is, this is a process. This is a pathway that I, that I want people to kind of work their way through. But once they've, once they've done that, by all means, I think you could go back and go, right, now I need this little bit of a, a little bit of a touch up. I need this. I needed this thinking. I needed to put a photo of a wombat with lipstick on the wall. I need to, you know, to, to hear that that message. How, how am I talking about myself? How am I adding value? So, um, so yeah, it's a bit of a shift for me writing a book like this. So yeah, so it's a bit of a workbook then, in in some ways. I think that, and that's certainly the feedback that I'm having from people when uh, when they're contacting me after reading it was. This is what they needed to hear, but they needed to go through it and then go back and go through it again because they they're, they're ready to change, but they're you know still got a little bit of that resistance to change. Uh, so I, I tried to write it in a very as I always do though, but conversational, short bites, a bit of stuff to say, hey, maybe put the book down and just go away and have a think about this. You know, go and go and just reflect on like what I think I've got one section there. I talk about, does this idea make you scared? You know, like how are you feeling about that? That's okay. You should, you know, feel a bit nervous because I'm asking you to do something significant in your business. And I see too much business advice that in my opinion is just do this, just do that, just do this. And, and I think that can sometimes have a, quite a dramatic effect on a business and not in a, in a positive way. Mm. I mean, that, that does say something, it's so easy to up your prices. It's so easy to, um, as a consultant, as a uh, as a practitioner, or even as a retailer, to go from tomorrow our prices are going to be recommended retail, and that's mm -hmm. all we do from now on. It's easy to do that, and so that could be just a one-page pamphlet on just charge more, right? Mm -hmm. But there's obviously a lot more in terms of the journey of transitioning from where you were to to charging more um and and how how you're going to engage customers 
how you're going to change your your work practices, your thinking, your belief systems, all those things. So hence a book of this size was required to it's it's not as simple as as just exactly doing that. Um, no. And I'm sure some people have done it with a bit of chutzpah, but um, it's probably um, not not as not as easy as it sounds. Well, and that's exactly why it is the size that it is because that that whole point there again, easy words for me to say. Hey, look, you know, just charge more, put your prices up, and it was that that moment of gravitas for when I went. I need to do more in this book because what I'm asking people to do is hard, and and you know that little that voice in our head that kicks in. You know, what if, what if, what if, you know, my customers won't pay that, the market's down, all, all of this conversation is there. And that's why I share a lot of stories. As you know, I, I love telling stories and I, I tell a lot of stories and examples, I think, to, to inspire people around this kind of thinking. And I've had the great fortune of working with so many people that have been um, able to charge the most, without a doubt, from photographers uh, to people making yogurt, to uh, to consultants, to restaurants, uh, and I and I really noticed that uh, as you know, I moved from Cairns to Melbourne a few years ago, and 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 I really noticed in Melbourne this whole concept of if you're a business that is the best at what it does, well, there is a queue at the front of your business. It doesn't matter what you what you're doing. I mean, I saw a barber in the middle of the city that charged 75 bucks for a shave. I've been to India and paid 13 cents for a shave that took two hours, right? And I go, $75 for a shave? Like, seriously? And there was a line out the door. And I'm going, how good can a shave be? Got a $75 shave, go, oh my God. You know, like I would go back and do that whenever I possibly can. It was an incredible experience. And, and, and I go, wow, you know, um, I, I work with Peter Lick, photographer, and I know you're a photographer, uh, a mad photographer yourself, mate. And, and, and I look at Peter Lick and, you know, sold three images for $10.4 million. Now, in the world that we live in, where everyone's got a high definition camera in their hand, when we are hearing about people saying, oh, it's so hard to be a professional photographer, it, it is, et cetera. You go, how on earth can some one guy have three, and he's regu he regularly sells images for a million dollars plus. This is not an anomaly, but to sell three in one hit. They weren't even his best shots, right? But what does Pete do? What is, what is he the best at? It's actually not photography, not being a photographer. And he's the first to kind of admit that. He has an incredible commercial eye for knowing what people will buy as a photographer. That's what he brings to the table. And that's um, and he's always had that. I, I was his next door neighbor. And that's how we met many, many years ago. And, and apart from that, he, I, I've never met anyone who's ever worked as hard as him ever in my entire life. I've never met a soul who is so obsessed and so such a complete nut of workaholic. Of course, now he's come to terms with that on his you know, 30 meter yacht in Ibiza, Spain, and he's thousand people working for him in throughout America and all the rest of it. You go, well, the hard work paid off. But yeah, and I've completely lost my. <laughs> Did you? Was there a question in there? Or well, the thing was, the thing was, is me? that we all want to know. So, when he was your neighbour, did he happen to, you know, flick you a couple of photos that are now worth it? <laughs> no, I, I have, but some of them, some of them are no longer relevant. You know, one of them, I, I know, one that's made out to myself and a former, my former wife. You know, so how do you sell that on eBay? Um, and, and ironically, I posted the other day, Tony. I. Um, my first book that I wrote was a Peter Lick book, which is Wildlife Australia. And uh, so it was his photos and some photos that he'd sourced. And I write, you know, the, the, the magnificent wedge-tailed eagle, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, and of course, I did a, I, I, I think he paid me $1,000 cash and it went on to sell gazillions around the world. And the one time I should have done a royalty deal, I did a, a flat fee. You know, you, you, you live and learn as an author, right? <laughs> Yeah. It should have been the most expensive that way. You... I, I know exactly, exactly. So, so when I when I open up and I look at some of these chapters and and various other things um, that that you've got here to uh, to inspire us, um, 
one of the things that kind of triggered for me is bookshop, which of course, um, that's how we first met when you spoke at the Australian Booksellers Association annual conference. And back then I was, you know, I was going to those conferences thinking these guys really have no idea what's going on in the, in the world and online and what I was doing with Booktopia. But um, it, I still see uh, bookshops selling for the recommended retail price way above what others are discounting for. And, and they, they do it effortlessly because they are there on the shop floor talking to their patrons and discussing books. And, and therefore, um, when it comes around to the question, and they say, well, can you do it for this? And they go, look, you may as well go to one of those other discount stores to get that. But this is, you know, we're here to add value and, and, and we hold the stock for you and we know what, what our customers want. Mm-hmm. And so they, they do it really well. The book, for those that do that, the book industry does it really well and, and, and uh, that they will survive, I'm confident. And, uh, and I believe bookstores are around forever. But so many of them do not engage with their customers. People walk in right, and they're walking around and the, the millennials are standing behind the counter too afraid to go out and engage with the customer or connect with the customer. And quite often I'll walk in and I'll even try and loiter near the counter to see if they're going to say, oh, excuse me, sir, can I, can I help you? Or is there anything you're looking for? And when they don't, I just walk out and I fist pump and I go, yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for giving Booktopia the, you know, the free passage through. Um, that's as simple as it is. It's really about getting getting on on the shop floor. In fact, the, the last one uh, store that I went to, went into where someone engaged with me was Dimmicks and Chatswood, and the guy was actually in the back room, and he stepped out and he said, "Oh, can I help you at all?" And I said, "Mate, thanks for coming up to me. You're the first person in about two years that's actually engaged with me." And we had a bit of a ch- chat about that, and and he says, "No, we we do it all the time." And I said, "Mate, you, that's a recipe for success." totally yeah yeah you you know isn't it that's such a truth do you do you remember um and again i don't want to kind of do the whole when i was a boy thing but but i but i remember that i would go into a bookshop when i was younger and i would ask the person for recommendations i'm after a book that does this or does you know can you you know what do you think and they they knew every book in the store pretty much and they would go right okay so what do you like you know it was like buying a new car okay so you want that do you have you read them and there are certainly bookshops that do that readings in victoria is an excellent one that i found um they're around there sadly folio books in brisbane used to be like that and they've closed now tragedy but but you're right it was that i can have a conversation with you and and that's what's lacking in a lot of businesses now if i can just share a brief story I, i i was talking at an event um for independent um, sports shoe, oh, sorry, independent sport wholesaler. So this is where a buying group for lots of mum and dad kind of businesses around Australia that are sporting stores um, in generally country, regional kind of areas. And at this event, there were about 300 people there. Uh, and we had the CEO or general manager of Nike, Reebok, Adidas, all these big brands were there for this forum. And there was a lot of anger in the air. And the anger in the air was all about the fact that someone could go online and buy a set of shoes from these companies cheaper than they could actually sell them in store for all price driven. Right. And, uh, and so I'm facilitating this thing. And it was a bit of an ugly mood to be really honest. And just as we're about to kick off, I think it was the CEO of Adidas or I can't quite recall which brand said, Andrew, do you mind if I say a few words to the room? And, and I said, yeah, sure. By all means. And, uh, and he got up and he said, okay, folks, this is who I am look, I just want to say a couple of things before we get started. If we spend the next two hours with you complaining about our selling shoes online and they're cheaper than the people can buy them in your shops for, we're going to waste that entire time because we're just not going to stop selling shoes online. It is a part of our business model. It's a huge part. I mean, you know, Reebok sold $260 million a year, Nike, sorry, $280 million US worth of shoes through Amazon for goodness sake, you know? So if we're going to have this big conversation about you should not do this, rah-rah, we're wasting our time. What's going to be more productive is if we spend the next two hours figuring out how we make your in-store experience so extraordinary that people are going to say, you know what, I'm not going to wait two or three weeks to get the shoes here that are maybe the wrong size or the wrong color. I'm going to buy them from this business. And 
<coughs> excuse me, he went on to say, because right now, realistically, the way it is, someone walks into your shop, a 16-year-old kid can ask them what color they want. That's it. There really isn't service. Now, what's the most expensive shoe store in Australia? Athlete's foot. And they're the most profitable. They're the most expensive. Why? Because someone comes up and talks to you, measures your foot, asks you what you need your shoes for. This You have a 30-minute consult. You don't just walk in there and buy a pair of shoes. You have a consult where someone really gives you a great recommendation. And, and that's what the difference is. So while we're all fighting about, well, you've got to lower your prices, you've got to do this, we're having the wrong conversation. So we spent the next two hours literally coming up with 300 ideas for ways to improve that customer experience. And these companies all said, well, how about we fund those ideas, some of those initiatives, some of that training, some of that material, rather than we just keep saying, how do we drop prices and have a conversation that's pointless because we're not going to change our model. Mm. That was a very interesting experience for me. And that's a lot of what I see. We're arguing about the wrong thing. So you're right. You go into a store and, and you want to buy a book from a bookshop and you go, wow, like really a lot of the bookshops don't do themselves any favors. But that's the same in so many businesses. I had to buy a new car a few years ago. I, in the strip, I went down the car strip. The first seven places, I was standing around scratching my bum waiting for someone to come out and talk to me. And I had 40 or 50 grand in my pocket to buy a car. My old car got written off and I had, I, I want to buy, I, I want to buy a car, right? And then it took me to the last place before someone even came and spoke to me, sat me down. I spent two hours talking to this guy about what I need a car for and all the rest of it. Initially, I thought, he's saying, what do you need a car for? Like, and um, anyway, so then I, I bought a $85,000 car. I doubled my budget off this guy because it was hard to fight with his logic when he took in all this information. He said, this is the exact car that's going to meet your needs. It's prestigious. It's this, it's that. It carries, it's comfortable. You'll be able to do your road trip. And I went, well, that's exactly the car I need. Everyone else was there. And you know what the irony of it was? On, that was on a Saturday morning. The front page of the paper that morning, there was this big article about how the automotive industry was struggling. In, in Queensland at the time. And I'm going, wow. I literally was carrying that newspaper around with me and saying it took me seven dealers to number eight before someone would even come and have a conversation with me. There was no one in them. It wasn't like they were busy. It was eight o'clock on a Saturday morning. And I went, wow, there's a great lesson to be learned in there. And you know, I, that's the only brand of car that I buy now. So amazing. Hey, and I think that's, that's, um, there's there's just people don't understand that that is where the where the the huge gap between success and either failure or struggle is 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 about getting those that that transition i remember before the pandemic a few years ago my wife and i um went to thailand for a little holiday and we'd been over there a few times before and we were um in phuket they have those markets where you walk through mm. and everyone's in these little stores and they're selling t-shirts and and you know, bags come to this, you know, they come back to the secret room where you can get the real bags and and all, all the and there's massages and they're all yelling at you as you walk past to come in. And and the last time we were there, I walked through and I said, Honey, did you notice this? And she goes, What? What? What are you talking about? I said, No one's saying anything to us. Why? Because all the all the young people then were on their phones, just looking at their phones, and we were just walking past. I mean, that is, now maybe we were there in the off season or something in comparison to last time. I have no idea, but mm. that is game over. Like if you are totally. not out there doing and engaging, that's, that's all you have. And, and so I think for those that are in, in retail or in stores, it's, it's so important to understand that that's your edge. And, and um, it's I, been I, lost. It's been lost to a large degree in the retail space, I think. Mm, yeah, so I think um, I think, um, but for those that still understand that, it's it's you know it's a superpower for them and, and their success. So we we're kind of coming towards the end of our time together. Is there anything here though? We didn't really go greatly into your book. I've got Andrew Griffiths, um, a best-selling author, thirteen books, and someone has to be the most expensive. Why not make it you? Is there anything in here uh, that we? probably should have touched on that you wanted to just mention as part of part of the 
This... No, I, I, I think it's been a great conversation about the idea. For me, um, it, it's been great to be able to share a few of the stories. And, and also, I think to emphasise that point, Tony, that, that this is not a cute little kind of idea that I've had. You know, this is, I, I mean, I've been in business for almost 40 years, 38 years now since I bought my first business. And yeah, I, I do a lot of stuff around the world, written a lot of books, done a lot of speaking, all that kind of jazz. This idea is actually a big idea. And I think it's it's applicable to, to pretty much any business, um, but other people have business models that are price-driven that, that work. Again, I mentioned McDonald's before. I, I, you know, I understand, you know, on that side, but what I'm, I guess what I'm doing is, is providing an alternative to say and, and giving people permission to say that if you offer great quality, great value, if you offer an incredible customer experience, there are people that will find you. And that's the big shift now. We're not geographically isolated anymore. There are people that will track you down. And, and that doesn't matter what it is you're doing. And my view on that is the, the line that's sweet, and I literally just had it in an email today is, I, I, I like it when someone says, wow, you know, um, Andrew Griffiths, he's expensive, but I'll tell you what, he's the best. That to me is music to my ears. When, when someone says that, that, that's I'm positioned. They already know that I'm not going to give it away. And, but they use that word, he's the best. He's the best. And, and I get that in, in referrals all the time. And, and I think that's a great place to be because if, if you really do price accordingly, I think you really do build a robust business you attract the right kind of clients. You have this great sense of satisfaction in what you're doing. You've kind of got this insurance policy where you're building perhaps a more resilient and stronger business because it's actually profitable. Um, and you get uh, that sense of uh, that, that sense of pride where you, where you and your team are delivering great stuff and, and others know it and others feel it and others share that. I, I, I love that. When I see a business that's really good at what they do, they charge accordingly. And there's this kind of almost a bit of cockiness that comes with knowing, hey, we're really good at what we do and we know it. Mm. And I go, and I'm prepared to pay you for it. Whether buying a croissant, buying a loaf of bread or buying a car, doesn't matter to me. It's the same kind of principle. Mm. Hey, in interesting. So why don't we um, hand over the, the questions to you? I know um, it's become a bit of a, a ritual towards the end of these podcasts to to get the knowledge expert to ask me, the CEO of Booktopia, something that might um, might give you might give you the listener an insight to how how someone like Andrew may ask um, an entrepreneur or a business owner um, a question or question or questions that you can then, even though I might be answering on behalf of all of us and Booktopia, but you'll take those same questions and and think about it yourself. So, what what have you got for me? So, so I mean, Tony, there's a there's a thousand questions that I could ask you. Um, the the question that I, my first question that I would love to ask you is, as we know, your company has just floated, and that's an extraordinary milestone and achievement. I want to know what did you find the most challenging personally uh, about that? Not not business wise, but personally, what was the most challenging aspect of that? In floating the business, or. Hmm. Um... Nothing really. I, I, you know, I have an amazing team. So I, I think um, there wasn't anything there that um, felt like uh, it was, it was um, a like a, a chasm to jump over. And will I or will I not make it? It was, there was, it was all very um, clear and measured. The difference. See, we tried to IPO in 2016. And mm -hmm. it was literally like going down to Bondi Beach on a midwinter's day with a southerly coming in from the Antarctic at eight degrees to sell ice creams. Temple and Webster were trading at 15 cents. They're now at $12. Kogan had flatlined since they had, since they had listed. Um, uh, Redbubble was down. Surf Stitch was heading off the market. So there was, it, was not, it was not the best of times to try and uh, raise capital. And finally, we got to the very end and we were trying to firm up the price and 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 get a and get it away. Amazon announced they were coming to Australia, and everyone said, "Well, they're going to annihilate you." This time round, it was like because of the pandemic and e-commerce had moved from the wings into center stage, and it was like the theatre had been darkened, and the spotlight was on e-commerce. 
it was literally like going down to Bondi Beach on a midsummer's day to sell ice creams at 42 degrees and the queue was 400 meters long. So it was just the timing was it just everything was right to get it away this time around. So the most important thing was speed and and getting things uh, done quickly and mm-hmm. and making sure that we just didn't try and be uh, perfect uh, in terms of uh, making sure every little thing was was spot on. It was about making sure it was it was good enough um, what we had done to get it to get it um, underway and present to the um, ASX and to ASIC and to to have a prospectus that was that was um, that was um, worthy of of people of people's um, investing their money. So, mm. so quite frankly, it was that because I had gone through a process before where it was uh, it really was tough. This time felt like a bit like a breeze. So right, right. Um, so from that aspect, it was it was fine. The the transition between uh, being a private company to listed wasn't difficult. Uh, the the all of the um, the management presentations were easier because I had already done a a trial run four years before. So I kind of knew what that might feel like. So, um, so that was, um, it was, yeah, that, that, that was pretty, uh, I could do it again. It was, it was enjoyable. So a better question that I should have asked is what did you learn from the first time that you, that you, that you tried to fly that, that, uh, that's what I should have asked in that one as well. Cause that was obviously the big learning one, right? Yeah. So the, I think the main thing is how, um, when you go and play in the in the capital markets, that they're all out there to make money, mm-hmm. and you've you've got to allow them to make money, and you've got to allow them uh, the people who are buying into your investment to make money as well. So not to be too greedy, not to price yourself so um, they're paying top dollar to get a piece of of the of the company. It was we were modestly priced, which meant that when we got on the exchange, that the price went up and it stayed up and 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 so um, sometimes it feels like you you're giving a lot away um, and paying a lot uh, to get get it done, but at the end of the end of the day, the business was ended up being valued at three hundred and fifty to four hundred million. So um, although there were came at some costs, uh, it was it was um, you know, to get there was was worthwhile. Probably mm. like trying to build a house or renovate mm. your house and trying to get it to the market and. And uh, and and if if you if you're trying to sell it when it's unfinished, it's going to be a lot less than finished. So uh, you might pay over the top a little, but you got your return because market's hot and everyone's buying property, and you just got to get it done. Um, mm. And so versus the windows closing and and um, maybe you're heading back into winter again. I think that was it. You know, like the mm-hmm. timing of the seasons and 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 making sure that you're coming into it at, at when you were, you know when when the, the surf, surf's up and and the water's warm mm. Mm, so interesting isn't it okay can i ask you another question go on i talk to to a lot of business owners uh, about relevance and, and i feel that we're in a war for relevance uh, i think in business these days not so much even just necessarily relevance for our product or our service or, or like will people want to buy it or not but, but just relevance because people will want to spend elsewhere. And I remember there's that famous quote that Netflix uh, founder was talking about their biggest, their biggest uh, their challenge, I, I believe it's, it's sleep, okay? People sleep, they're not watching movies on Netflix. You go, wow, that's kind of bizarre. So, and I've done a lot of work in Japan and, and they place their strategy so long-term and it's all about how do we stay relevant to our audience? What, what does that look like? So I guess my question to you is, um, like, what does the next fifty years look like for Booktopia, and how will you stay relevant to your customers in that time? Mm, fifty years is probably um, a few few horizon points beyond where I'm thinking. About five to ten. I mean, what we've done is we've moved from being a like a, a local um, Aussie um, online retailer to becoming Australia's biggest book retailer. To now. Um, we've moved into distribution and publishing. So, so as a distributor and a publisher and a retailer, uh, my my vision is is to be at the very central core of the book and in, book industry, and and as we expand internationally, it's to be at the very core of those markets, be it New Zealand or North America, and and Europe. And you might say, well, well Amazon is so massive. Well, we may not need to go in necessarily as a retailer. We can go in as the distributor and publisher and work our way up from there, rather than the way down. Amazon has largely moved on from books. They they sell books, of course. They're the biggest book retailer in the world, but 
Um, they're a tech company and physical books actually prefer somebody else to sell the book to somebody else, um, take their 20% clip of the ticket on the marketplace than fulfilling themselves. They make more money doing that than they, they actually uh, do it fulfilling themselves. So, so for us, the relevance is we've never wanted to be the cheapest. I'm mm-hmm. happy to be in the ballpark. And it's about holding the stock and having it available, ready to go. So having knowing what stock to have, the right stock, there's 30 million active books out there. Um, 30 million and one now with yours. Um, <laughs> and, and so 6 million are on our site and we hold over 100,000 in stock. So, you know, how much, do, how many titles do we need to have, but also how deep does that list need to go? So when people come to our site, we're not running out because we can predict what, what they need to buy. That, that to me is, is being relevant. We've moved into academic, into tertiary as well. So um, uh, therefore, it's not just thinking fiction or business or biographies or children's. It's books uh, actually extends itself to quite a diverse range of, of product and, and categories and sub subcategories that we we focus on. So it's 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 about making sure that um, that we're working closely and particularly in the supply chain. As I've moved from retailing mm-hmm. down into distribution and publishing and working with the printers it's embarrassing how much money they waste on books moving from this place to that place and mm. it just adds to the adds to the price of of the product so so um so us it's about um immersing ourselves into the value chain right down to the author and and therefore we can extract more margin and and be be more profitable but also then so we can do more and expand and grow more so the relevance really is right. um i remember Many years ago, being asked to, to uh, go on the book industry strategy group. And I said, oh, you don't want me on there. I'm going to piss <laughs> off with what I have to say. And, oh, no, we really like you. Anyway, the guy ran, running it rang me back half an hour later and, and went through the whole thing. And we've got the we've got authors, we've got printers, we've got big publishers, little publishers, we've got distributors, literary agents, right? It'd be good to have an online bookstore. All right, all right, all right, I'll join. I, I, I said, but... I want to ask, have you got the most important group of all on your strategy group? No, we don't. The readers. So they're all, you know, focused on everything. Like for us, for 17 and a half years, we've asked one question. What do our customers want every single day? And by Mm. focusing on that, you end up being where Booktopia is today. But it's interesting, on that strategy group, Don Grover, who's the CEO of Dimix, really tall guy, barrel-chested with a deep, booming voice, you know, he said said to the group, he said, it's all about price and availability. And what I heard was the word availability because we had just started to hold stock and more stock and more stock. And I knew that that was what we had to do. We had to have the stock available because we're a long way away on the other side of the world in some instances. So it was about making sure that when people came to us, they could get it. And I think that's an important part to what we're talking about today and that we didn't want to be the cheapest. Um, it's just a one cent spiral to the bottom. Um, but um, um, but that's certainly you know, part of um, the you know, some of the cornerstone um, you know, thinking and, and and strategies that we used at Booktopia. What a great answer! What a great answer! Okay, can I ask you one quick question? That is a personal interest one. It's a short one. What was your first job? Am I before out of school or while I was working? In school. In school. In school? Just the first um, time someone paid you to do something. Um, it was working at um, Chatsword in the um, in the sh- shopping mall where um, Franklin's was, and I had to go and get the trolleys and Did bring you, them back up to. You're a trolley boy. Yeah, I love it. In, in <laughs> my first job outside of school, after I had mastered in Space Invaders and Snooker at university, <laughs> and failed at accounting and economics, was the was the mail boy at the NRMA, 1981, and and. Remember, in, you probably, for those of us that are old enough, you'll know this, but you used to type up a letter to someone and, or write a letter, and then you put in an envelope and cross out the name of your name, most likely, and then put the next person's name. Right. There, the then, inter-office kind of uh, yeah, thing, right? right? And I would yeah. go around with my trolley handing these out, right? I was the email system of NRMA. <laughs> um, and so that was my... That was my <laughs> so, yeah, so, so your first real job, you were basically email. I was, that's, a, that's, I was the that's email it. system. It was the Nash mail. Um, uh, and, like, and eventually I was, I was made redundant because the email would then, you know, 
that was all done, done and dusted. You lost relevance, Tony. That's you great. learned a great lesson, right? That's it. You should have just been faster than email. Uh, look, you know, That's what are you going to do? I love that. Thank you for sharing that, mate. That's fabulous. Both, both stories. I can't imagine you as a trolley boy. Um, and we, you know, it's just, it's always interesting to hear that and being a male boy, I guess that's, that's a redundant job now, right? I guess that doesn't even exist anymore. No, no, even th those envelopes, like I reckon if someone had, had them, they'd be worth more than a Peter Lick photo. Um, <laughs> but, but thank, thank you, Andrew Griffiths, author of someone has to be the most expensive. Why not make it you? It's available in all stores and online, Booktopia or anywhere else. Um, and he's uh, keep an eye out for all of his other books as well. He's he's a talented writer and speaker and and business uh, entrepreneur and mentor and coach. He's uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Good to catch up again. And Great look to forward to the next one. Thank you, Tony. Fabulous. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I always do. And thank you for being uh, such a great friend and supporter over many years uh, and hopefully many more years to come for both of us. Hey? Indeed. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au.